The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Emily Day, and this is an episode from the Lawfare Archives for December 5th, 2021. Over the past few weeks, the House Committee investigating the January 6th attack on the Capitol have issued subpoenas to a host of former White House officials in the Trump administration, a majority of whom have opted to not cooperate with the panel. A look at Trump's record in both the private sector and as president reveals how the former president is accustomed to utilize the law to stall cases indefinitely. And most recently, he's turned to these tactics in a bid to thwart House investigators from accessing documents from the Trump White House. To shed light on Trump's strategy to skirt legal issues, I chose an episode from May 27, 2017, in which former White House counsel for Barack Obama, Bob Bauer, talks about the office of the White House counsel and how President Trump can and can't be restrained. I'm Benjamin Wittes, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, May 27th, 2017. It's been a wild and woolly few weeks for the president and the law. We've had questions of obstruction of justice. We've had questions of temperament. We've had questions of all sorts of legal shenanigans, including disclosing large volumes of classified material to the Russians, And I know what you're all thinking about this, which is, how does the White House counsel let him do these things? What is White House counsel Don McGahn doing? What is he thinking? And what powers does he have to put a stop to any of this? I thought one way to think about some of those questions was to sit down with somebody else who's had that role, and I had just the person to do it. Bob Bauer served as Barack Obama's White House counsel. He's become on lawfare an absolutely essential voice for making sense of it all. I sat down with Bob on Thursday and we talked about what he would do if he had a client as difficult as Donald Trump and what we can and can't say about the advice that the president is and isn't getting. It's the Lawfare Podcast, episode 228, Bob Bauer on Trump and the White House Counsel. So, Bob, I want to start with a question that there are very few people in the world who are positioned to answer, but you are one of them. Let's start with a normal president. Uh, We'll get to Donald Trump in a minute. But what are the sort of special challenges of being the person who gives legal advice to the president? 
It's a good question. I don't know that I'm the only one who can answer it, but I would start by saying, first of all, in the West Wing, I've always thought it was extremely important for the lawyer to be the honest broker, someone who is thought to be giving legal advice separated from any policy preferences that he or she may have. The lawyer for the House, not, say, somebody who is running an agenda in disguise. That way, you build a relationship of trust with all the members of the West Wing, and we can come back to that in a minute, how important the senior staff is to the way the White House counsel functions, because they know you're just being a lawyer. You're not taking a position because it's consistent with what one faction prefers in a policy dispute. So that's key. Secondly, I think it's extremely important that the president understand the role of the White House counsel. Now, it is sometimes said the White House counsel represents the office of the presidency and not the individual president. And that formulation is a bit facile. The truth of the matter is the president that you represent is the president right in front of you, the president who has a policy agenda, who is elected to carry it out, presumably. And so you are representing a flesh and blood individual there, while at the same time keeping the broader health of the institution in mind. And so keeping that balance, if you will, between your attentiveness to what the president is seeking to accomplish as that particular president and what is required of you as a government lawyer in protecting the institution is also a critical facet of, I think, maintaining your credibility and performing well as the White House counsel. So I would name those two at the very top and say those seem to me to be the essential preconditions of success. Then you can get to more granular discussion of how different presidents see lawyers and how you work around that. You know, what does it mean to say, quote, unquote, no to a president? I mean, all of those wind up being, you know, specific questions that arise in the course of the White House counsel's duties. So let's let's back into some of those questions. Uh, Donald Trump is quite obviously an extremely difficult client. Um, Let's talk about Barack Obama as a client. You know, his his public presentation is kind of somebody who would be almost an ideal client. He's measured. He's not irascible. He he's the opposite of impulsive. He's cerebral, and so you look at him and you say, "Well, okay, if I if I had to be." the person who would raise legal problems with a particular policy course, this is the sort of person I would want to do it to. Is that is that optical appearance reasonably close to reality, or was he a more difficult client than, than, than one would guess? In truth, if you were a more difficult client, I'd be the last person to say so publicly. But I will say you've largely captured, I think, uh, some of the tremendous advantages I had as White House counsel to President Obama. And I say that, by the way, without wanting to deify him in any way. I mean, he's a flesh and blood individual. He had his moments of frustration. And I guarantee you there were moments of frustration he had with me. But you have touched on some key aspects of the president that, again, I think reflects not just well on him, but clearly was helpful to anyone who represented him in the role of White House counsel. One was he did understand the role of lawyers. The president was the last person, I think, who would say that what he valued in a lawyer is telling him what he wanted to hear. He would have thought that was pointless. He wouldn't have wanted that in the room. Then the question for him would have been, what's the lawyer there for if uh, he or she's merely trying to read me and then feed back to me what I'm looking for? He wanted uh, candid legal advice. 
He might ask hard questions. He might detect some uncertainty on your part and challenge you about it. But at the same time, what he was looking for was a meaningful, substantive exchange about the legal issues that he needed to know about, you know, not ones he didn't need to know about, but that he needed to know about, and he understood what the lawyer was there to do. Second, I think the president, having been a law professor and a successful law student, was pretty quick to detect what was a good legal performance and what wasn't. And so, as a result, he expected lawyers to come to the room well-prepared and to exhibit the mastery of the relevant facts and materials that were necessary for the advice that he, that he was looking for, uh, for advice of high quality. And I think that was important because it sent a message to the entire White House counsel staff, as well as to the White House counsel, that if you met with the president on legal issues, he wasn't looking for a superficial answer. He was looking for an answer that, if you were asked to supply it, was thorough and well-reasoned. So I agree with you that in those respects, um, I couldn't have asked really for more. I've represented politicians uh, in one form or another for most of my professional career, sometimes on narrower issues, like, for example, how they fund their campaigns, and sometimes in, on much more complicated issues that entail potential criminal liability for them, or complex questions like the uh, very involved and unfortunate episode with impeachment that President Clinton faced. And I have often encountered politicians who have a very different view of the role of lawyers and would become extremely exasperated dealing with a lawyer who wasn't, in a word, compliant and wouldn't have known the difference between a well-prepared or an unprepared lawyer, would have judged the lawyer's performance entirely by whether the answer was the one that they hoped for. Okay, so you go, there was a break where other people were Obama's White House counsel, but you, you basically go from being Obama's White House counsel to watching this unbelievable relationship between a president uh, and the legal system, including his own his own lawyers. And I'm I'm interested for your thoughts on Donald Trump president as client. I have to before we get to yes. like what advice you would be giving him if you were in that role just like this is a really difficult job being being Trump's lawyer from what i've read i have to assume so i I'll, i've never met donald trump i've never dealt with him in any capacity whatsoever i'm knowing what i know or to the extent that i know it i'm gleaning what i know from the public record from what I've observed from some accounts of some people who over the years have had dealings with Donald Trump. So I want to start with that. I want to start in all humility. But one would have to start with the working proposition that he's not an easy client to have, that he has a very instrumental view of the law that he carries over from the private sector, and therefore, if you will, a very instrumental view of the role of lawyers. The law is uh, something that pops up in the course of his affairs that should be managed, managed to a particular outcome, to a particular result that he wants, and the best lawyers are the ones who get that for him. He wants tough, rough, result-oriented lawyers. And in the business world, for all I know, I, I'm not a business lawyer and I don't come from Donald Trump's world, that may be uh, something within whatever legal and ethical boundaries one wants to draw. That may be something he absolutely needed to do to succeed. Uh, and maybe that's the norm. I don't know. I rather doubt that from my observation of other business lawyers and in other contexts, but maybe so, it does not translate into the public sector. So let, let, let's let's unpack that a little bit. I mean, I can think of a number of reasons why it wouldn't 
easily translate. One is that the president is at the end of the day an executive, which is to say a law enforcement officer or a law carrier-outer. Um, but I detect that you mean something uh, a little bit more refined than that. So why doesn't it translate? Uh, why can't the presidency take that attitude toward, toward the law effectively? Well, apart from the point you make, which is that he is you know, responsible for the faithful execution of the laws, and so it's not merely an obligation of the job, it's a high constitutional obligation. For the period of time that he's president of the United States, he has an enormous custodial responsibility for the health of the institution. The people that he's calling upon for legal advice, for example, the White House counsel, the attorney general, and those who work for him are public servants. They work for the general public. Yes, as I've said, there's a balance they have to strike between being responsive to what he's trying to accomplish as the elected representative who has an agenda to pursue on the one hand and the presidency as an office on the other. There is some balance there that they have to find. But at the end of the day, their larger obligation, their overriding obligation, is to see that he performs within constitutional and legal boundaries and takes care with the office that he is responsible for for the period of time that he's there. And a president who sees himself as merely running a large company, he's just running a large company. Yes, he has a responsibility to the shareholders, but for the most part, he simply has to negotiate the legal environment so that he can successfully accomplish his business objectives, is operating on a model that is not the model for a president responsible under the Constitution for that office. Okay, so I want to go back and some of this you've written about on the site. But if you were in that office and Donald Trump is president, um, what are the things that you've seen uh, develop in the press or in other means, including letters that the president has publicly issued? So some of them are public documents and some of them are leaks to the press that you would say wow, how did that get by my office, <laughs> right? Or yes. that, that if you were in that office, you would raise red flags about. I, I can think of 50 of these examples, but, but, but I'm really interested in what the ones that grab you are that you say, I, I would have raised a very strong objection and I'm not really sure how that office let that go through without doing so. Well, let me say something about the office letting something through. Uh, I can't judge what that office might have advised the president. It is very possible that the White House counsel in some of the cases we're about to talk about gave the president excellent legal advice and the president simply chose to disregard it. Okay, but let, let, let hold on that for a second because there's an antecedent question, which is how strongly do you have to feel about your legal advice before you would resign if it were ignored? That's very difficult to say in the abstract. It depends on the facts. One factor that I suppose militates against a hasty action to resign, I'm imagining, is that the administration is so young. And so you are attempting, if you're a public servant and you're really looking after the public interest, you can imagine a White House counsel adopting a variant of Jim Comey's reasoning, which is that I really have a responsibility to try to quote, train or set things right. I may have lost this battle. I'll try, particularly after he absorbs the consequences of what he did, 
to initiate another battle and maybe more successfully the next time. And so it's very hard so early in this administration with the president so poorly experienced, um, has no government experience, does not seem to understand the difference between how he operated in the private sector and how he has to operate now, it's, it might be particularly challenging for a lawyer to make a decision now to just simply walk away and add to the complications of putting the president on a more acceptable path. Okay, so as we proceed with this conversation, your working assumption in each of these cases is not that this was overlooked by the White House Counsel's Office or got by. It was that they gave whatever advice they gave, which may have been perfectly good and perfectly reasonable legal advice, and then he did whatever he did, either with reference or without reference to it. You just don't you don't make an assumption about what advice they gave based on what he did. Correct, and I don't think anybody ever should. I mean, the truth of the matter is the cl- lawyer is a representative, a, a fiduciary, and the client is the principal. Let me give you an example. I can't imagine any lawyer that I know who would have said nothing when the president proposed to put in the Comey dismissal letter that he had been assured by Comey three times, truthfully or untruthfully. Uh, That is to say, he might have been truthful in saying this, not truthful in saying this, but that he had been told by Comey three times that he was not under investigation. It is inconceivable to me that the issue was not raised. And and why, why if assuming it's true, mm -hmm. maybe a rash assumption but yes. assuming it's true um why why shouldn't what why as a lawyer would you say uh that's a terrible idea don't include that in the letter well there are two issues there one is what actually happened so let's assume for example i'm a lawyer in the oval office and the president says you know i forgot to mention to you that i spoke to the fbi director three times and he assured me that i wasn't under investigation the first concern i have is not the letter the first concern are the contacts which i'm hearing about for the first time and now I have a whole different set of problems, quite beyond the release of the letter. Uh, the second is, of course, the letter itself. Now let's play out the scenario somewhat differently. Let's assume that the president's letter, as we've seen it, is a much shorter version of the one he originally proposed to send. Let's assume that he added even more detail about what he believed his conversation with Comey to be, about the reasons why he believed Comey was right. Maybe there was even somewhere built into it a written rant about this so-called made-up story about him in Russia. And the White House counsel, in my hypothetical, and I'm not speaking now about any particular White House counsel, I'm just speaking, you know, in these hypothetical terms, might have walked out of there at the end of the day happy that he had just negotiated it down to the words that we're talking about. Who knows what it started with, right? Now, again, it may not have played out that way at all, but I think these are the complications in trying to judge what happened there. But this much we know, even when what went out of the office should not have been there for two reasons. Number one, uh, if there had been such contacts, then the White House counsel has much more serious problems and should be addressing those. But if there were such contacts, certainly no client would be well advised in Mr. Trump's position to just publicly advertise them. Okay, so, so there's the letter. Yes. Um, You have also written about um, a pattern of activity, uh, which I've also focused on, uh, that begins with the dinner, the loyalty oath dinner, 
and continues through a series of events that you've written that if you were White House counsel, you would be concerned about an obstructive pattern emerging out of that. So, so walk us through, first of all, what, what the pattern is that would concern you and what the sort of advice that you would give a president if this, you know, as this uh, pattern starts to emerge in the press, what's the sort of thing we can expect that Don McGahn, assuming he's doing his job the way you would do yours, might be telling the president at this point? Well, first and foremost, he would be telling the president, stop communicating on this subject with the senior command of the Department of Justice and certainly with the leadership of the Federal Bureau of Investigation. And I'm going to separate the two out. The president may have some occasion on a number of issues like policy issues to communicate with the senior leadership of the Department of Justice. The president has indeed potentially some circumstances in which he or she might communicate with the head of the FBI. But in both cases, and certainly in the case of the leadership of the FBI, those communications would not involve ongoing active investigations, and in particular, not one that involves potential liability for him or his associates. So the first thing you would say to the president, I think, in those circumstances is that there are both norms and legal considerations. And the reason for the norms is essentially as a means of trying to enforce against the worst possible outcomes that the law might then be called upon to deal with. The president, three times by his account, three times he spoke to Comey. At one dinner, he demanded to know whether he was going to be loyal. He apparently called Senator Coates at the office of the National Intelligence Directorate. He apparently spoke to Director Rogers at the NSA, again with the view of having them help him out with an investigation he didn't want to continue into his own prospective legal liability. He then gave an interview to Lester Holt in which he told Holt that he had Russia very much on his mind. In fact, it was the precipitating reason for his decision to fire uh, Jim Comey. And that's important not because he's communicating with a government official, but because he's now publicly discussing what his motives were in calling people he shouldn't have been discussing that with in the first place. I, I hate to use the word chaos because that's just showing up in too many news stories nowadays and, you know, everything is chaos and turmoil and whatever, but I'll just use it in my sense. It's a chaotic way for the president to manage the space around himself uh, and around the Oval Office. Uh, it is inappropriate. It violates norms. And then again, as you suggested, it can clearly lead uh, and I think almost certainly will lead into a question about whether uh, within the meaning of the federal criminal laws, he was attempting to obstruct justice. He was attempting to stop an investigation into his own personal liability. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, Lawfare listeners. Ben Wittes here. want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, The data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information, Big culprit this time is something called my life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have my life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story, that you know they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back. And then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan 
when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and enter code lawfare20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20, code lawfare20. Okay, so... I'm, but I'm, the more I hear you talk, the more I'm feeling for the poor White House counsel here. Because presumably the president did not sit down with the White House counsel before the meeting with Comey at which he asked for loyalty and said, so I'm having dinner with Comey tonight. I want to get his loyalty pledge. Is it okay to ask? Which presumably McGahn would have said, that's a really bad idea, Mr. President, right? Mm-hmm. And presumably before the president picks up the phone and calls Comey and asks him, you know, hey, are you, uh, you know, are you investigating me? He doesn't ask McGahn whether that call is a good idea, right? And there's this sequence of things that presumably McGahn is finding out about only after the FBI director has been removed and the president has boasted about his motives um, in that removal, um, for that removal. And so, you know, the, the, the ship has sort of sailed on a bunch of the conduct in question. And so what's, what's at this point, the white house counsel's function, um, is it merely to prevent him from doing more? Is it to, is it damage, legal damage control with respect to, uh, Bob Mueller, is it establishing, uh, nor, you know, compliance? I mean, like, how would you think about the, the role that, uh, assuming that, he, that the, the office learns about these activities rather late in the game? Mm-hmm. Without knowing all the facts, and so I'm going to be shooting a little bit in the dark, I obviously, I cannot be all that precise about you know what the White House counsel in these circumstances should have done because there's a there's a rich background here. What exactly happened? Who the president informed he was going to be doing this? Uh, who, whom he informed of his plans to do this? Uh, how the White House counsel finds out about it and so forth. I mean, in, in fact, frankly, how the entire decision making process in the White House is structured. All of those would bear on the best possible strategy for a White House counsel. But speaking in the most general terms. At this point, and this is why I originally mentioned the West Wing, the White House staff as a whole, the White House counsel needs to pull the entire building together. Because if the president's not telling the chief of staff, excuse me, the White House counsel that he's planning to do this, some of those early warning signs might have been known to or should have been detected by others dealing with the president at the time, the chief of staff or Mr. Bannon or uh, his son-in-law, Jared Kushner. And he was having conversations apparently with them about his decision to dismiss Comey, so he might have been discussing the means as well as the ends. And if the White House counsel didn't find out what was afoot until after it happened, he needs to have, and presumably may have had, a really serious conversation with the rest of the building about the consequences of this behavior and what the staff as a whole is going to do to restructure itself to prevent further harm from taking place. And that would also apply to any conversations you might have with the Department of Justice, any of whose employees, including the Attorney General, uh, would have had wind of the president's interest in potentially making those phone calls or having that dinner. But what if we make the assumption, 
which is actually my working assumption, that the White House counsel was aware of the plan to remove Comey, mm -hmm. but was not necessarily aware of all these specific interactions that make that that act look like the capstone of an, an obstructive pattern rather than a bold exercise of the presidential prerogative to get rid of an FBI director whom he doesn't like. I, I mean, I think it's reasonable in the chaotic environment that you're describing to assume that, that, that the White House counsel may be operating with extremely imperfect information, right? Yes, but then the question is, why is that? So let me give you an example. If I'm the White House counsel and I find out that the president called Director Rogers and said to him, I need your help in stopping Jim Comey from going forward with his investigation or having him lighten up, whatever he said, one question I'm going to have is, how come I didn't hear from NSA about this? How come Mr. Ro Dr. Director Rogers, I'm not saying he didn't do this, how come Director Rogers didn't inform the general counsel of the NSA and the general counsel of the NSA didn't call the White House counsel and say, Five minutes ago, the president had a really troubling phone call with Director Rogers, and you need to know about it. And that's what I mean about making sure that the entire supporting structure in the executive branch is helping you do your job. The White House counsel is not going to be able to function without the support of all of these other actors, from the chief of staff within the West Wing and the rest of the senior staff there, all the way out to others. Let me give you another example. If Director Comey told, and he may have, again, I'm just going to spin all these scenarios out, his general counsel that the president had asked him for loyalty at the dinner. One question I would ask is, why didn't the general counsel at the FBI call the White House counsel, which, by the way, he may have done, and said, hey, you need to know, that's not an appropriate conversation, and the director was really uncomfortable with it. That could very well have happened. Maybe it didn't. But if it, which is why I said at the beginning, not knowing all the facts makes it difficult to sort of conceive of how you would deal with the situation. But if it didn't happen, the White House counsel needs to bang a few desks because that has to happen. He has to have that information. He has to understand what's breaking down in the structure of the building and in the staff support that permits that information to get to him so late. And also, why is he flying solo? Why is nobody else rising to the occasion and helping him do the job he has to do? He can't do it alone. So it sounds like you, your key concern here, if you were in McGahn's shoes, would be uh, the development of information reporting systems within the executive branch so that you could kind of get control, if not control of your client, at least you could find out what the client was doing. Yes, and the control point is, I'm glad you raised that. I, I have now been stressing how a White House counsel might react to learning of this after the fact hearing, reading about it in the newspapers, for example. The control point goes to the responsibility of the chief of staff. There's been a lot of discussion of the role of the White House counsel. The chief of staff's role is indispensable to the success of the White House counsel's mission. Okay, so like a lot of people, everybody knows there is a White House chief of staff and that he is the chief of staff. Yes. People don't really know what the function is, what 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 the chief of staff does, really. So let's walk through that. When you say the chief of staff's role is, is indispensable, what are we talking about here? What's the role that you would have Reince Priebus be playing right now? Reince Priebus has to 
strengthen the White House counsel and the rest of the staff's hand in dealing with the president on these issues. And that falls in a number of categories. First of all, after some of this breaks and the White House counsel, again, on a high, our hypothetical, learns about it, he needs to be able to say to the chief of staff, we need to call everybody in. I need your full 100 percent support in devising a strategy to educate the president about the dangers of this conduct, the legal issues raised by it, the ethical issues raised by it, the political and press consequences of behaving in this fashion. I need your help with him, but I also need your help with the rest of the staff. So we're going to initiate what's often called in the, in the White House a process. And that process culminates in a set of more viable controls than the ones that obviously existed. That would include, for example, drawing everybody, including the president's son-in-law and his daughter, into that conversation. We're often told in the press, or we learn from the press, that he listens to them. You want everybody rowing in the same direction. For that to happen, the White House chief of staff, who is, as you say, the chief of staff, he's really the operating officer of the West Wing. It is his responsibility to make sure that the president's space is orderly, that the information systems are working properly so he's receiving the information that he needs to make decisions, that the decision-making process is one that allows for diverse voices to be included. And if a problem develops, he's supposed to be, if you will, the point of the spear in devising a way to address the problem. If the White House counsel has a weak chief of staff who doesn't have the confidence of the president, a staff system which is rife with rivalry, conflict, finger-pointing, and outright withholding of collaboration, a president who's determined to go his own way and may, in fact, be, by the way, seeking advice from outside the building from people who used to counsel him on his business affairs, for all we know, right? the White House counsel's chance of success has been reduced dramatically. Okay, let's talk about that for a minute because I was reminded of when you were talking of – uh, this brilliant Onion video uh, uh, that is a spoof on the, uh, you know, the old uh, in, uh, CIA interrogation waterboarding debate. And the, the, it's a panel debate on, you know, whether it's uh, a violation of the Geneva Convention to uh, uh, loose detainees in a, in a labyrinth and have them savaged by a minotaur. And at one point, the, the mock Bush administration lawyer uh, says, you know, even if the allegations about the Minotaur are true, and I'm not conceding that they are, uh, his actions cannot be laid at the feet of the administration because he is a beastly Minotaur and no chains can bind him. And I, and I kept thinking as you're, you're talking, you're describing chains to bind a Minotaur yes, here. absolutely. And and if Donald Trump is a beastly minotaur and no chains can bind him, uh, what is the process that you're, you're describing going to be worth? Is, 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 is the problem here that we're all wrapping, trying to wrap little chains around the, the minotaur and no chains can bind him? Or is there actually some internal processes that the executive branch can actually impose on itself or imposed on the president that in fact function as real uh, constraints, restraints, or at least information points such that that uh, people get a get reaction before, you know, Mike Schmidt puts it in the New York Times. I'm not suggesting it will work. It may not work. I, and I don't know that it hasn't happened. Maybe it's happened and it hasn't worked. But you have to start there, and then you have to hope that over time, when the president 
doesn't hew to this process, when the president doesn't comply with these expectations, but the system is otherwise working, people have that opportunity to try to stop him, to educate him, right, to sort out a way to get around the problem with him or to have him not engage in that conduct, that the consequences then can be fed back to him to demonstrate to him that he is disregarding that process and disregarding that advice at his peril. And you would think at this point, given what's happened over the last several weeks, that the White House counsel could deliver one hell of a briefing to the president that would get his attention about what it means that either there isn't a process or that he's disregarded it, or there are norms that he hasn't paid much attention to, and now he's violated them and he can face the music for them. He's seeing what the consequences of disregarding those norms are. So I'm not saying it's going to work. Maybe over the long run it doesn't work. But at a minimum, you, you ask me, what are some of the things the White House counsel has to be concerned about? What are some of the approaches he might take to solve the problem, if you will, to put the chains around the Minotaur? And those are some of the immediate thoughts that come to my mind. But I, I want to stress again, somebody asked me the other day, and, and maybe this is just you know reflecting on the experience of White House counsels over time, and some of them have had a pretty rough run of it. Is the White House counsel up to the job of representing this president? And the question I have is, we may find out nobody is. Well, so that's a that's a really interesting minotaur note. Um, so here's my here, here's the question it raises to me. You know, um, some people are going to listen to this podcast and they're going to say, uh, "Yeah, Wittes is interviewing Bob Bauer, who's you know a Democrat, and he uh, and Wittes hates Trump." Uh, and so he's got Obama's White House counsel on to, you know, talk about how badly, badly the president is listening to lawyers or how badly he's being advised by lawyers. Yeah. Um, so my question is how much variability there's been. A, there's several people who are alive today who've been White House counsel mm -hmm. uh, in both parties. Um, how much variability in, and disagreement would anything that you've said uh, inspire among the club of people who've occupied this particular position? I haven't come close to saying anything controversial. I think everybody would agree, uh, even people with very different perspectives on the job. For example, White House counsels who might have heard me say they have to separate themselves from policy disputes and who would have strongly disagreed with me about that at least here where we're talking about the president's compliance with the law keeping himself and his administration out of danger, risk of oversight, risk of criminal investigation, risk of very corrosive press that is threatening to the president's agenda, on these points, I don't think there would be any disagreement whatsoever. And 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 no disagreement by if if I got all the Republican former White House counsels uh in a room uh you don't think there would be any sense that you were being unfair here uh, to a Republican president? I don't think so. Look, I like to believe on some of these issues that, you know, over time, I can think of a few examples. I won't bore you with them. You know, I have been very open to, benefited greatly by conversations with Republican colleagues and lawyers about matters on which I think there should be bipartisan agreement. I think, for example, the role of the White House counsel is an important role. That office is relatively new in American political history, American presidential institutional history. And there's much to be discussed among Democrats and Republicans about how to make that work best for the modern presidency. I'll give you an example. Not too long ago, 
I worked with a group of Democrats and Republicans, which included at least one former White House counsel, on the question of how to strengthen, or let's put it this way, how to establish a set of fundamental standards for the vice presidential selection process. You know, how do lawyers to presidential candidates, some of them incumbents, some some of them incumbents, some not, um, help support the president and what kind of processes are helpful to the presidential candidate in making a publicly responsible choice of a vice presidential candidate? Because it's an unusual process by which the vice president comes to be on a ticket, right? Vice presidential candidates come to run for that office. It's a one-person show. And I had, you know, perfectly reasonable conversations, very productive conversations with Republicans. And this is a topic we're having here uh, where I think I could have similarly very successful conversations about basic principles like some of the ones that I've discussed here. And I don't think we'd be running into any significant disagreement. They might have some useful things to add. I'm not suggesting I'm covering the field here, but I don't think they would view me as acting in some partisan fashion. So if the distinction is not partisan... Uh, it follows that the distinction and, – and the distinction isn't policy because none of these issues are, are fundamentally policy issues, right? Uh, it follows that the, in, the distinction is, is temperamental and, and personality-based, right? That, that, that this is an – which is intuitive actually because if you think about what makes Donald Trump profoundly different from – other presidents, Democratic and Republican, it, it's actually that he's temperamentally and, and cognitively and morally different, not that his policies, though they are different. Uh, um, um, at the end of the day, does that suggest to you that 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 temperament is a that temperament and personality is a much bigger feature of the presidency than we tend to think of it in the selection process. Absolutely. And I don't know that that hasn't maybe it does it receives varying emphasis over different periods of time, but I think it's generally understood that when you pick a president you are bringing somebody into a position of enormous power. Some would say, by the way, a position that's become over-empowered over the years, uh, and that you have to be concerned about matters of temperament. And the entire invasive process of looking at our presidents, their history, whether they use drugs, their family relationships, infidelities, all of that, I think is meant to address, sometimes expressly put, sometimes not, this larger concern of, who are we putting in that Oval Office with all this extraordinary authority? Is that person somebody with the temperament, the balance, even allowing for wide variations in personality to discharge those powers uh, responsibly? Immensely important. I like to say, by the way, and I don't mean this disrespectfully, but I'd like to say, I like to say that we are in a strange institutional posture or sort of overall posture in our political system that is deeply unfortunate in the following sense. We have an extraordinarily powerful presidency that has, over the years, granted with ebbs and flows, right, pre-Watergate, post-Watergate, whatever, uh, put a president in a, a really commanding position of individual authority and power at the same time as we are dramatically lowering the barriers of entry to the office. 
What do you mean by that latter point? Because it seems like the barriers to the entry are the same as they always were, which is to say you can, uh, you can, you can go through a grueling process to get your party's nomination, and then you can uh, go do hand-to-hand combat with the person who does the reciprocal thing on the other side, and uh, one of you will be left standing scratched and bruised and become president. But that, that doesn't seem to that that difficulty of that project seems to have gone up not down so in what sense have the barriers to entry been been lowered parties don't have uh, as institutions uh, a extensive role in screening and vetting for those who seek the nomination to the highest office in the land an individual who has the ambition and access to resources and drive and probably also as always happens luck can go ahead and run for the nomination of a political party and win it and then proceed to run in the general election and run for the presidency and win it. They don't have to pass any political peer review. They don't have to have shown any experience in prior political office. They won't have to have, quote, worked their way up so that over time their temperament and their capabilities are tested. None of that. They can run for the presidency as the first office they've ever run for. They can run for the presidency in a party of which they were not previously a member, which has certainly been the case. Um, They can run without any support uh, at all among the elected officials with whom they're going to be working most closely, for example, in the Congress when they get to the office. None of that is required. And so you're going to wind up with people who wake up one morning and say, "I I think I can be president of the United States. And with Donald Trump setting aside what people think about them, and here I'm trying to be, you know, cautious, because I know you mentioned somebody might hear an Obama lawyer and say, well, his political views are certainly predictable. With Donald Trump, you have a candidate for president, never held a public office, never involved himself, frankly, even in the private sector in any major sort of policy advisory activities, co-chaired a presidential commission, became a specialist in some brand of philanthropy that overlapped with public policy. None of that. Wasn't a Republican until recently. didn't have in his past even, notwithstanding what he said about it as a businessman, didn't have in his past an experience that even translated to some aspects of the job, like, for example, the way in which he tried to link his business experience to the creation of jobs. He really wasn't in job-creating businesses. That's really not how he made his money. And so I'm not saying that the people who voted for Donald Trump didn't have their reasons. There are a lot of complicated factors that bear on the selection of a president. I'm saying that this is an example of very, very lower barriers, low barriers of entry. Now, somebody could come back to me and say, oh, I hear that. Well, who are you to speak to that subject when you're a supporter, and I am, and an admirer, and formerly work for and currently represent uh, Barack Obama? And he had not been in public office for a long period of time. He'd been a state senator. He was only in the United States Senate for two years. I take the point. Uh, I think it is certainly true. He had certainly vastly more experience than Donald Trump had, But he didn't have, for example, as much experience as Richard Nixon did when Richard Nixon ran for the presidency in 1968. I can only say that Donald Trump has none. Right. So leaving aside the comparison with Obama, and this is a good point on which to close, what you've described is, is, is a very difficult operating environment for a lawyer to walk in and take on a representation. That is, a guy who has no political experience, who's, who's uh, you know, got an 
eccentric temperament who has a history of legal compliance problems in everything from the management of businesses to uh, his you know, sexual conduct, uh, who uh, is prone to uh, impulsive speech and, um, and who is suddenly taking on the most powerful office in the world. Uh, and so the question is, if you were faced with that challenge ex ante, um, and not not a not retroactively now it all having blown up in in a hundred ways, but it's you know January of 2017, and you're walking into that office knowing that that's the operating environment that you are are taking on. Um, I would think you wouldn't want to run a normal White House counsel's office of the type that you ran. And so my question is, if you had been asked to do that, knowing everything you just said, what institutional changes would you make to the White House counsel's office as a condition of accepting the appointment in the first place? That's a very difficult question because, as you pointed out, I mean, you have a president, and this is true of every president, whose own personal style is going to significantly affect the organizational options or their feasibility, whether they actually can be successfully executed. But in a hypothetical world where there's a candidate who has some of these same characteristics you just described— I think that I would be looking for an enormous amount of process, uh, understandings with the president prior to taking the position with the White House staff about how we are going to educate people in the particular challenges of keeping the president well advised, some systems for, uh, if you will, breaking the glass when a problem occurs, what what are the problem-solving procedures that we're going to run through here. I mean, there are a variety of ways that you would probably start thinking about how is the day-to-day process by which the building runs going to take into account the inexperience and particular temperamental characteristics of the president. If the president doesn't like to get information in certain ways, if the president thinks of lawyers in certain ways, how do we take that information into account in thinking about how best to support him? And you're going to need the White House staff uh, support for that. And and here's where it can break down. You're going to need the president's support for that. Uh, and I don't know how that works. Uh, maybe it does. So maybe there's maybe there's some learning experience. We're going to find out the president arrives at a better place, from my perspective, on these kinds of issues in the future. But you'd have to at least start at the beginning recognizing that you're facing a very tall task. One last question, and then I'll let you go. Does he need legal review of the Twitter account? Absolutely. Absolutely. Without... Let me, let me, without, without you know, violating confidences, let me just say that for a variety of reasons, the notion that anybody in the White House, much less the president, would be sending out public distribution emails or tweets without a process for review and approval is, to use the term again, simply inconceivable. I mean, discipline and messaging out of the White House with all the consequences of poor screening discipline is absolutely essential. And the notion that the president can get up at 3.30 in the morning and start tweeting out a reaction to what was bothering him the night before or what he's seeing on the early morning shows, uh, that notion just simply, I mean, that to me is something a lawyer just simply has to make clear is unacceptable conduct. 
unacceptable because it takes risks with the viability of the presidency and in a variety of other ways affects the ability of the president to do what the public elected him to do and to behave in the way that we would expect him to behave to return to this point as a custodian of that constitutional office. Bob Bauer, thanks very much for joining us. Pleasure. Thank you. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with, huh, let me think about that. Oh, yeah, the Brookings Institution. Thanks this week to Bob Bauer for making the trek across town to chat with me. You need to do your part to help promote the Lawfare Podcast, which is really starting to break through now. So please take a moment, if you're one of our new listeners, to go to the iTunes store or whatever podcast distribution service you use and leave us a rating and tweet about us. Facebook, share us. You talk about us with friends. Tell people about the Lawfare Podcast. Our music is, as ever, performed by Sophia Yan. Thanks for listening.